In this Advent season, we have been taking advantage of uh, uh, the occasion uh, to look at what the Bible teaches us about why Jesus came in order that we might uh, be reminded of the reason for the season. And uh, I'll just say that uh, Christmas cheer is not what you drink. Um, It's celebrating the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners, or as we noted last week, to seek and to save the lost. We want to look at another one of the phrases um, in the gospel accounts, uh, which explicitly tells us why Jesus came. And this morning, uh, that's found in our uh, text, that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. If that strikes you as odd, good. We'll have an opportunity to explain it momentarily. But let's read that uh, together, all right? Beginning in verse 32 of chapter 10 through uh, to the end of the chapter. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Five points to the sermon this morning on this phrase that Jesus came not to bring peace but a sword. First of all, a clarification if this has created confusion in your mind. Secondly, the conflict uh, which uh, Jesus alludes to here. Thirdly, the cause for that conflict. Fourthly, the choice which that conflict presents to every hearer. And fifthly, the comforts for those that are involved in that conflict. So clarification, conflict, cause, choice, and comforts. Christmas uh, is a time of year when we should be reminded of the antithesis. What is the antithesis? It's found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God comes to the respective parties in the fall, the serpent, the man, and the woman, and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is between the serpent and the woman. I will put enmity, hatred, hostility between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. So the antithesis, I remind you, is the God-ordained hostility. God put it there, all right? The antithesis is the God-ordained hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the church and the world, the forces of righteousness, the forces of wickedness, the kingdom of the devil, and the kingdom of God. That is the antithesis, all right? And Christmas is a time of year when we should be reminded of the antithesis. As odd as that may sound, I trust that this sermon will make it clear. The world wants to portray Christmas as a time for promoting peace on earth. 
And yet, uh, when they try to do it, it's without Christ. And that is simply humanism. With man, humanism is the man is the man, or humanity is the center of all things, the be-all and the end-all. Um, so we need to hear the teaching of our Lord uh, in order to counter this humanistic emphasis so prominent in this season. First of all, a clarification then. Uh, in our text, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace uh, to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. As I alluded to earlier, that's somewhat shocking. Uh, is, and why is it shocking? Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We learn in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. He is uh, not uh, the teacher, uh, he is the teacher, sorry, who in the Beatitudes, for example, says, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, Paul himself, with respect to Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 2, says he himself is our peace, all right? So how can Paul say that? How can Jesus say this, all right? The old Testament prophets spoke of the reign of the Messiah as a time of tranquility and peace. And this is one of the major stumbling blocks for Jewish people down to this day to have faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel because they have incessantly been taught that when the Messiah comes, there will be a time of universal tranquility and peace. Well, were the prophets wrong? Were the rabbis wrong? Is there some misunderstanding at work here? All right. The peace all right, that they speak of um, is associated with faith, all right, Jesus, Paul, and others, and has no existence except in those who sincerely worship God, those in whom or amongst whom God has brought peace by reconciling them to himself. That's not so for unbelievers, all right? Um, though it is offered to them by the gospel, all right, uh, they do not and they will not be reconciled to God. Christ's coming into this world not only resulted in division, but it was intended to do so. You'll remember that uh, Mary was spoken of prior to the birth of Christ, that Jesus, her son, would be set for the rising and falling of many in Israel, and a sword would pierce her own heart. So the very intention for which Jesus comes is uh, to uh, result in division. Uh, that is, those who are either for Jesus or against Jesus. And I remind you that this is the central issue in the Gospels, and it is the central issue in the New Testament as well. Who is for Jesus and who is against him? All right? The central issue is always the person of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus goes about his itinerant ministry... He's preaching, if you will, himself, all right, as the one who brings the kingdom of God. And when the apostles tell us about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the key is Jesus, all right? So that is the issue. Um, and so uh, a little bit of a clarification with respect to this statement that we find in verse 34. But secondly, what about this conflict, all right? The reference to the sword here in verse 34 is twofold, okay? It's twofold. First, it's a reference to the sword of the Spirit, which we know from Ephesians is the Word of God or the Gospel. And it's a reference to the sword of the Spirit because the disciples use that in this conflict to fight against the world, all right? Secondly, though, the reference to the sword here is a sword of persecution with which the world 
wars against the church, hence the antithesis, that God ordained hostility between the world and the church, all right? So the sword that Jesus says he came uh, to bring, all right, is the sword of the spirit with which the church wars against the world, and it's the sword of persecution with which the world wars against the church, all right? Okay. We can see these here if you look back at verse 7 in our text, Matthew 10. The sword of the Spirit, all right, is referenced in verse 7 as Jesus sends out the twelve, all right, uh, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The proclamation of the gospel, all right, is that sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which the church uses to war against the world. War, remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or carnal, all right? Rather, they are spiritual. The weapons of our warfare are not swords, literally, iron swords, right? They are not guns. Uh, they are not uh, nuclear weapons. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the proclamation of the gospel and acts of Christian mercy, all right? With deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes, we sing. Second sword, or reference to the sword, is found in verse 17 and following. Look at that, if you will. Jesus, as he sends his disciples out, says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, uh, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So we have, on the one hand, the proclamation of the gospel, which the church uses to war against the world, the sword of the spirit. On the other hand, we have the uh, world warring against the church. As the church goes forth, preaching a gospel of reconciliation, peace, and love, peace between man and God, all right? Uh, the church, uh, excuse me, the church encounters the warfare of the world seeking to extinguish that. You'll be brought before men and do not fear them. They will seek uh, religiously and politically. Very significant. Look at the text, right? They will flog you in their synagogues. You'll experience religious persecution and before governors and kings, political persecution. And the history of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years has been exactly that. It's been one of untold persecution, both religiously and politically. So the sword, all right? This conflict, all right? The inevitable result of Christ's coming is conflict. We need to hear about the antithesis at Christmas time. We ought not always to expect unity, harmony, and peace. And certainly, we're not to sacrifice anything and everything in order to get unity, unity, harmony, and peace, all right? First of all, just to illustrate this for you, there's division in the church, okay? That's not always a bad thing. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Another reason why many people object to the Christian church is, oh, you guys are always fighting amongst yourselves. You can't even agree with each other. Well, that's certainly true. But not all conflict is bad conflict. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9. All right? Yep. Sorry, 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There must be. 
factions. There must be disagreements. There must be fights. There must be division in the church in order to show which of you have God's approval. And this is exactly what has happened throughout the history of the church when church councils have met, for example, in the early centuries of the Christian church. They were battling out, was Jesus divine or was he divine and human? Or was he human? Arius, right? Arian controversy. I won't go into all the history of controversies in the early church, but it it continued down for centuries into the pre-Reformation area, into the post-Reformation area, and it continues down to today. So not all church fights are bad fights. Also, family. Look at our text, verses 35 and 36. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Conflict. I've experienced this in my family. Many of us have experienced it in our families as the only Christian in our families. And, of course, that's true in our nation as well. If you pay attention to what's going on around this season, you will note that there is much opposition to a Christian understanding of Christmas. As we get more and more secular, as we spiritually decline more and more as a nation, as a people, the true understanding of Christmas, all right, as the coming of the Son of God into the world to seek and to save the lost, all right, begins to be obscured and eventually lost. Let me give you some examples, all right? Um, In Reno, Nevada, a high school was prohibited from giving out candy canes bearing the term, Jesus loves you. In Michigan, government schools, music teacher Linda Whitner's Uh, told of barring such songs as Silent Night and First Noel from Holbrook Elementary School's winter concert. In San Diego, Martha Clark, spokesman for Balboa Park, it's a huge park in San Diego if you've never been there, Um, we've been considering a name change for some time to be more inclusive. Um, The park this year renamed the 24-year-old holiday festivities from Christmas on the Prado to December Nights. No more Christmas. Westminster Choir College, where my daughter went to college, it's in Princeton, New Jersey, was founded as a school to train men and women to sing uh, psalms and hymns to the glory of God. Their signature hymn is the ironic benediction with which every concert for their entire history has been concluded. Done away with it. We want to get rid of a self-conscious Christian identity to our school. Just this Friday night, uh, Julie and I and Taylor went to a concert, local concert, right? Uh, Christmas concert, I forget the name of it, was billed as a Christmas concert, right? Uh, and there were all-female ensemble singing a cappella. Beautiful voices. It was really beautiful. Not one Christian song at a Christmas concert. It was all jingle bells type songs. That's what's going on, all right? We need to recognize this and we need to acknowledge the antithesis at this time of year. It's a time of conflict and we're surrounded by it. What's the cause of that conflict? Well, just to cut to the chase, look at Romans chapter 8, if you will. Romans chapter 8, to provide an answer to that question. 
the cause of the conflict is ultimately not Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He has come to reconcile sinners to God and establish peace in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, by taking their place on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people. He died in their place, all right? Uh, That demonstration of love and an effort of that loving uh, desire, intention to reconcile sinners to God by that sacrifice, by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension, the ultimate cause not to be found in Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace, nor is it to be found in the gospel. The gospel, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is a message of reconciliation, right? Ultimately, it is proclaims peace uh, in that the kingdom of God has come to reconcile uh, such people. But if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 7, you find the cause of this conflict, all right? Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The cause of the conflict is in the sinful hearts of fallen men and women. Yes, God put that hostility there, but that hostility resides in the hearts of men and women. Now, notice what this says. Please take note, all right? Even for some kindly disposed grandmother-like figure who needs help crossing the street, her heart is hostile to God. By nature, as fallen sinners, sin has been inherited from our father Adam in every human heart, and sin has caused every human being born since to have an innate and inherent hostility towards God, hatred towards God. For those of us that have testified or witnessed to others, whether it be in Madison Square Park or where we live, work, study, and play, that hostility is manifested not most times in throwing stones or spitting or cursing, although I've certainly experienced that. Most times that hostility is manifested in indifference. You tell people about the love of God. You tell people about a Savior who has come to die to pay the penalty for their sins, that their sins might be forgiven. And they're like, eh, no different than the price of bananas. By the way, i got to go to Trader Joe's, excuse me. Indifference. Well, what's the choice that this presents us with? Verse 37 in our text, Matthew 10. Verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The choice is simply who is on the Lord's side. Who is on the Lord's side? Are you for Jesus or against him? We'll have occasion to come back to this momentarily, but I want you to note, as I've often pointed out to you, blood is not thicker than water. 
The water that's referenced in that statement is the water of baptism. All right? And the popular saying is, blood is thicker than water. We stick together as a family despite the church. Jesus gives the lie to that. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Faith can often be a divider of families. You see this not only here and subsequently and in subsequent history, as I alluded to earlier, but you see it in the Bible. Cain slew Abel. Chapter 4, there's the antithesis right there. Two brothers. Maka and his uh, grandson, Asa, 1 Kings 15, Nabal and Abigail. You see it throughout the entirety of the Bible, all right? And simply, no relationship can replace a relationship with Jesus Christ. And no obligation is more binding than an obligation to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm not setting that forth as the teaching of this church in order to exercise some dominant control over you as members or people that attend here. Jesus is saying that. And why does he say that? Because he is that valuable as the one who goes to the cross, as the one who undergoes the horrors of hell so that you and I don't have to, as the one who lived the perfectly obedient life when you and I have been perfectly disobedient, as the one who rose from the dead in order to give new life. If anyone is in Christ, there's new creation translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. All of that, Jesus says, that has to be the most valuable thing in the world to you. I have to be the most valuable person in your life. To refuse loyalty to Christ, Jesus, according to Jesus, is to be not worthy of him. That is not deserving or belonging to or being honored by him. A willingness to sacrifice for Christ and his kingdom must be total. We'll have more to say about this in our 1130 service where Jesus, in one of the parables in chapter uh, 14 of Luke, talks about counting the cost. Counting the cost. But fifthly, fifthly, and in the time remaining to us, what are the comforts for those who are engaged in this conflict? All right? It's not just, all right, predictions of persecution are found here, but prescriptions of comfort for those who are enduring that persecution and that comfort uh, and that conflict. All right. Look at verse forty. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives uh, him who sent me. There can be no richer blessing than that. Something to keep one's mind on in the midst of opposition, conflict. Or verse forty-one. 
The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one, now, I, not many of us are prophets, right? I'm not. You're not, right? But he goes on. <clears throat> the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. You are righteous. You have been declared so, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He is credited his perfect righteousness to you. You are that righteous person, and that promise is for you. As Jesus talks about persecution, as he talks about conflict, he says, here's a comfort in the midst of that. And I have nine more because I want to encourage you (laughs) in the conflict, all right? So, one, verse 19, 19 in our text. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Yeah, in the context, he says, they're going to hand you over to religious authorities who are going to flog you. They're going to hand you over to political authorities. They're going to persecute you, but don't be anxious. I'll give you words to say. I don't know about you, I've often thought about the prospect of martyrdom as um, uh, persecution becomes increasing, increasingly the case on the horizon of our society. It's racing towards us. Would I be willing to die for Christ? What if that were me and I was called to sacrifice my life? What would I do? What would I say? God gives grace when you need it. Don't be anxious about that. God gives grace to his people when they need it. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you're a Christian, Jesus has rescued you from hell. He has redeemed you from hell. He has uh, restored you to a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does, right? And he says, don't fear. I don't know about you. It's a scary prospect. There were martyrs at the time of the Reformation that would have holes drilled in their head and hot lead poured in until they recanted and, and denounced Jesus. And they didn't. I don't know about you. I'm just getting chills thinking about that. Jesus says, no, no, no. Whatever they do to you is nothing compared to the horrors of hell. Fear God who can consign people to the horrors of hell. Verse 27. Next. Verse 27. So I have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus says, no matter what happens, don't shrink back. Don't compromise, don't fear, don't be anxious, but don't shrink back. Just keep going. Keep being faithful. I remember, Julie, I don't know if you remember Oren Holtrup from years ago. Anyway, he was an older preacher, just a godly example. I remember him preaching, and whenever he would come and preach, he would say, you, he was like 99 years old, right? He's up in the pulpit. He would say, you, 
Just be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. Punctuating his point with this index finger. Don't shrink back. Verse 20. Verse 20. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, certainly this applies most particularly in the context to the apostles, right? But there's a promise here of God's special presence with you. Isn't that the promise of Jesus in the Great Commission? I will never leave you or forsake you. Not in the worst of circumstances. Not in the most horrific, fearful circumstances of opposition, conflict, and persecution that you might face. I am right there with you. Emphatically, in the word order, it says, I myself will be with you. Verse 22. Verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There will be an end. There will be an end. It won't go on forever. Perspective makes all the difference in the world. Courtney and Valerie could tell you that as they anticipate the birth of these beautiful children. I'm finding it hard to sleep. I can't turn. I can't eat. There's no room for the food. I don't know about this childbearing stuff. But in a week, it'll all be over. Perspective makes all the difference. Jesus says, there's going to be an end. Don't worry about it. It won't go on forever and ever and ever. Verse 22. I'm sorry, that was the end. Uh, Verse 24 and 25. Verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Listen, here's what you need to know, all right? No matter how small or minor the opposition, conflict, or persecution you might, you might encounter, maybe you encounter it in your family, maybe you encounter it on the job, maybe you encounter it in social settings from your friends, maybe they ostracize you, maybe they marginalize you, boys and girls at school, maybe they make fun of you, all right? Jesus says, this isn't personal. Don't take it personally. It's not you they're opposing. It's not you they're persecuting. They hate you because they hate me. And don't forget that. Verses 29 to 31. Verse 29 to 31. It's a lot of encouragement here, right? It's not just persecution, right? 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says, I have to be more valuable to you than anyone or anything in the world. Because you are more valuable to me than anyone or anything in the world. I love you. I am with you always. I will care for you. And even dark providences, even opposition, even conflict, even persecution, I, because of my ability of sovereign control and my love from the depths of my heart, will work even evil for your good and for your salvation. 
I promise. Verse 32 and 33. Two more. 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What's the comfort? Jesus Christ will acknowledge you before the Father. Just think on Judgment Day. Everyone will have to appear before the throne of God. And everything will be revealed. The books will be opened. And Jesus is our defense attorney. And he's the one who before the Father says, No, that one is mine. No, that one belongs to me. No, that one is covered in my blood. And that one is dressed in my righteousness. They belong to me. Enter into the joy of your reward. And then lastly, verses 40 and following. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says, there will be some who welcome your message. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do not think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for these words of Jesus who prepares us for what we experience in this life, conflict, persecution, opposition. And thank you for his sacrifice in our place and for his great and promise, precious promises to always be with us. Grant us faithfulness. To the end, we pray, for Christ's sake, amen and amen.